0: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith. And on this episode, I'm joined by Senator Murray Sinclair to discuss our government's reconciliation efforts, the progress that we've made in some cases, but also the serious work that lies ahead. Senator Sinclair was a judge in Manitoba before his appointment. He led efforts in Manitoba's public inquiry into the administration of justice for aboriginal people. He also led efforts in a pediatric cardiac surgery inquest into the deaths of 12 children, but he is perhaps best known for his role as the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Senator, thank you for joining me.
1: Oh, well, you're more than welcome. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this discussion.
0: I read that you first went to law school out of an interest in some ways in politics. Is this where you thought you would end up?
1: No. In fact, I, I sort of gave up on the idea of a public life back in uh, 2015 after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came to an end. I, I actually made an announcement that I was going to withdraw from public life. I was going to dedicate most of my time or the remainder of my time to my family who had sacrificed so much because of my public life to that point in time and, and the public nature of our lives as a group. You know, had a burden on them. And prior to that, I had been a judge for almost 30 years. And and I had very early on in my legal career, after graduating from law school, in fact, probably decided against getting into politics as a politician, at least. Uh, I got into politics as a lawyer. I did a lot of political things, not for political parties or political organizations, but for causes. And and I was very much uh, an activist. I never saw myself ever getting involved in the Senate. And
0: uh, What changed? I mean, you were reticent about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission initially, too. And then I had read you had said, if you can, you must. And is it the same mentality that brought you to the Senate?
1: Sort of. Uh, uh, you know, being called to public duty has always been uh, an important obligation, I felt, uh, ever since I was a young, mm-hmm. young boy. And uh, my grandmother had ambitions for me to become a priest. She was a very strong Catholic, having gone to a Catholic residential school. Uh, she retained her faith in the church for her lifetime. And she wanted me to be a priest, and she raised me that way to believe that I should become a priest. But it was as a young teenager that I came to the conclusion after reading a lot of material uh, about the role of the church, particularly during the Second World War and its role in history generally, that uh, actually moved away from the church. And, and so in, in accepting that, my grandmother said to me that, whatever I chose to do, that I had to uh, get an education and I had to use my education to help good happen and to help people. And so that's always sort of been a fulfillment of my commitment to her and everything that I've done. But when I uh, was asked if I would... do the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. By that time, I had done two commissions. I'd done the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry in Manitoba. I'd also presided over the Pediatric Cardiac Surgery Inquiry, which I looked into the deaths of 12 babies. Now, that was very hard emotionally because these were babies, babies who died at the hands of a surgeon who should not have been operating on them in a hospital that allowed that to happen and almost was callous in its treatment of the families of the, the victim's who died, and and I was very deeply affected by it because I had little children in my lives. I had two grandchildren. I had um, nephews and nieces who were very, very young. And I couldn't help but when I saw them think about those children who had died and the fact that they would never have the kind of life that the young people in my life were going to have. And I carried that burden with me for a number of years. And um, and when I was asked to do the TRC, having done the AJI and having done the pediatric cardiac surgery inquiry, I knew that it was going to be an emotionally draining experience. So I turned it down and I said, I, I've already done two inquiries. I don't think I could do another one because I think it would be too hard on me. And so having turned it down, they selected another set of commissioners uh, to proceed. And when they quit, they left behind uh, a real strong sense of both frustration and anger on the part of the residential school survivors who felt that this had been their one opportunity to tell their stories to the public, to share their experiences with each other, to have an opportunity to, to an join in common cause and talk about what it is that they could do to move forward. And I could sense that, I could see that. And so when I was asked again, if I would reconsider and take on the role of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission Chair, I I said I would agree to it, but on certain conditions. And I named what those conditions were. The parties agreed to those conditions and then we set off. But it was emotionally very difficult. And so when the TRC ended, I was still very drained. I felt exhausted. I didn't feel burnt out. I just felt exhausted. And I wanted an opportunity just to uh, to rest. And so I gave the um, public notice of my intention in uh, mid-December when we did our final event in Ottawa. And the prime minister was there, in fact, and I announced to him as well in public that I was going to retire from the bench and I was going to step out of public life. And and so the public heard that. My family was there and I they heard that, too. And then um, I retired from the bench on January the 31st. And then on February the 8th, prime minister called. Prime Minister's request was whether I would consider going into the Senate and he had certain ambitions for the Senate that he wanted to know if I would uh, help work on and so we had a long conversation but I said to him uh, Prime Minister I said you heard me tell everybody that I was stepping back and I wanted to devote more time to my family he said well why don't you talk to your family and see what they think and so I did talk to my family we had a family gathering uh, the next night and we all had a very long meal and a long discussion. And what the children said and my grandchildren also said was it's really up to mom. They left it up to my wife to sort of have the final word. And so at the end of it all, I said to her, so now what do you think? And and she said, well, when you told everybody you were going to step back from public life, I, I thought that was a good thing. You know, I was looking forward to spending more time with you. She said, and you've been home for eight days now. <laughs>
0: And those, Get back to work.
1: <laughs> and in those eight days, she, she said, "You've organized the cupboards three times, and I can't find a damn thing." <laughs> so I was going to ask if you wouldn't mind finding a part-time job anyway, <laughs> because <laughs> I don't know that hanging around the house is really something you're good at. So, <laughs> so I, I said, "Well, I guess if if that's your blessing, I'll take it." So with that blessing, then I. Uh, agreed to do it. But I said to my family, I'm only going to do it for five years and uh, then we'll see. Then we can talk again.
0: It is a testament to the impact that public life has on family and those relationships. I have a seven-month-old and an almost four-year-old and my wife's in Toronto and it is... A conversation that we revisited before the 2019 election. And it's a conversation that we'll need to revisit again, because it's such a challenge. And it's worth the sacrifice in many ways when you feel as if you're making a positive impact and changing, in some cases, national politics and, and society overall for the better. But it sometimes catches up to you and you think, I need to prioritize family first. And a colleague, Michael Levitt just said he's stepping down for those very reasons. So it, it is a conversation you have to revisit. And and reflect on continually in in the course of this job?
1: Whether they admit it or not, you know, the children uh, miss you and the grandchildren miss you and they want to see more of you and they want you to be around. And plus, you know, my wife, is uh, her her state of health is not that good. And uh, being around to be able to support her and help her is important to me important to the children to know that she's well provided for it's important to her to feel secure so and i feel that more and more each day and uh, i stayed home a lot i think we found a sense of comfort about my being around that and, and providing her with that assistance and and providing uh, support as well to uh, other members of our family
0: you weren't but rearranging the covers so very much
1: <laughs> no i stopped doing that i learned uh, my role Uh, And my role basically was just to do what I'm told.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would be a loss, I would say, if you hadn't accepted the position in the Senate. It would be a loss, certainly, whenever you step away from from this job. I wish that I had received a greater education on reconciliation in the course of growing up and getting more involved in politics. I found the TRC report overwhelming in some ways. And I can't imagine having been someone who presided over those hearings and listened to all of that testimony because just reading the report, there's a weight to it and a heaviness to the information that even as a reader you're taking in. And the calls to action are also very clear. And as a parliamentarian, it becomes a document against which I can help to then judge government action, federal, provincial, and your proximity to government decision-making now in the Senate and having presided over the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and issued those calls to action, I wonder what you would like to see going forward that you haven't seen to date and faster progress, certainly, but are there particular areas if you were in the shoes of the Indigenous Services Minister or in Carolyn Bennett's role or the Finance Minister's role, if you would shape policy differently than we're currently shaping it?
1: Yeah, I think I would not hesitate to act more quickly, more forcefully than uh, than I see happening. One of the missing links in the whole process of the reconciliation initiative in the part of government has been the failure to uh, bring uh, middle and senior management and the bureaucracy on board, basically to re-educate the important decision makers within government to ensure that they not only understand... Uh, what was being asked of them by the cabinet ministers, but also that they themselves were able to begin to fashion the way that they did their business and that they recognize the importance of changing the way governments do business. And there's an element of that within some of the middle and senior managers, but it's not as significant as, as it should be the priority within government is still on other issues that they consider to be more important when i think that uh, our future and our relationship uh, indigenous and non-indigenous is really the key to the success of this country it is um, the key to our identity as a country and we're not getting there very quickly or getting there very effectively and and so i think i would be more likely to be more directive and more clear with expectations that I have for mid-level and senior-level management within the bureaucracy that they have to make this a priority as well. Uh, Because this shouldn't be just a priority to get elected. This should be a priority about changing the way we do business as a country when we're not there yet. It hasn't gotten to that point. We're quite uh, willing and quite eager to embrace uh, various aspects of the economy as a key to Uh, our future. But then at the end of the day, you know, when we finish building pipelines or we start resource development projects again, we're going to be faced with the very same confrontation issues that uh, we're now facing and we have been facing for years uh, without having resolved them. And then uh, having made a commitment to support them, government then will almost inevitably be drawn into the fight on the side of the resource industry and the economic uh, weight will be almost too much for the government to say no to the capitalists who want to do business. Uh, Having said all of that, yeah, I would do things differently than what I've seen. Things that the government and the things have not moved very quickly. And I'm certainly not moved as quick as I thought they should. But having said all of that, let me say that uh, there have been some important changes in some significant areas. Uh, We said that uh, education was a key to reconciliation. And it wasn't just education within the schools. It's also public education. It's also about educating people in positions of leadership. And I think we've probably come a long way on that point since the end of the TRC. We've seen uh, public schools begin to change their curricula to be more inclusive of indigenous people in the history of this country. We now uh, know that uh, in law schools that they're beginning to rethink the way that they teach constitutional law, the way that they teach principles involving criminal justice, child welfare, uh, real property law to recognize the uniqueness of indigenous rights and indigenous peoples. And that's true in medicine, that's true in social work, that's true in the education field as well. Uh, But some of that is being done without the support of government, the financial support of government, And, and financial support on the part of government is needed in order to do those things effectively. So we still have a long way to go.
0: A number of reports over the years seem to have been put on a shelf to collect dust, and there's been important work put into them And I feel this way a lot sometimes about parliamentary committee reports as well, but I don't feel that way about the TRC report. I certainly feel that it galvanized a more public facing conversation. And maybe it was the timing also in relation to the 2015 election, where it became a clear divide as between the way that business had been conducted under a conservative government and the way a new relationship that was promised by the incoming liberal government. You identify a number of areas within that report in terms of calls to action. And I wonder if I could walk through the high-level issues, starting with child welfare. We've seen a significant budget allocation of a billion dollars, and we've seen new child welfare legislation, which was one of the calls to action. We haven't seen other calls to action that I would find very helpful. For example, publicizing the reasons for apprehension in a clear way would certainly help decision makers and other advocates push on the areas that ought to be pushed on. When it comes to child welfare, is it more funding that's necessary? Is it maybe fixes to that legislation that you see needing to be made? And I start with child welfare because I think that is in some ways the greatest continuing injustice. Where when I look at the numbers of Indigenous kids in foster care versus non-Indigenous kids, it's shocking that it's 2020 and this is still happening.
1: The business model that the uh, child welfare system uses is no different than the business model that the residential schools use, which is the more kids you take into care, the more money you get from government. And the per diem rates that are paid that were paid to residential schools and to the churches that ran residential schools uh, went up the more kids they got into the schools. So they worked hard to ensure that more and more kids were brought into those schools and made subject to whatever the schools were doing. And the schools were not doing things very well in terms of education, and they certainly weren't treating them very well. While provinces are constantly saying that they're changing the way that they do business with child welfare agencies, they give them core grants, and and that they're not uh, necessarily limiting them to per capita grants for apprehensions. The reality is that agencies get funded on the basis of the number of kids they apprehend, And they justify more money by saying that this is a special needs child, this is a child that we need to place with a family that can provide them with the support they need because of the abuse they experience allegedly in the hands or the neglect they experience at the hands of the parents. And so they get more money the more they can exaggerate the situation that they are facing. The business model is totally crazy and it's got to change. Child welfare agencies should not be funded any differently than police agencies are funded. Police do not get a per capita rate for each arrest they make. <laughs> um, and if a police officer was told, um, you know, you've got to justify your salary because we're paying $100,000, we, you've got to go out there and arrest 100,000 people. And we know that he could do it easily because the incentive is there. And and I don't understand why the child welfare agency can't be funded in the same way that you get a grant based upon the population you're serving and the services that you provide, and that the services you provide should be richly funded so that you provide services to keep kids out of the system. And uh, right now, that's not in fact the case. The other thing that we're doing is we're encouraging child welfare agencies to remove kids from the home. Uh, and I don't understand that either. Uh, I've said In many of my presentations to judges and to lawyers and to child welfare agencies, why don't we take the parents out of the home, put the grandmother or the auntie or the older sister back into the home with the kids and tell the parents, stay out of the home until you go for treatment, uh, as opposed to the model that we're now using, which is we damage the children further by taking them out.
0: Taking them away, not only from their parents, but from their families and not respecting and understanding that it is families writ large that help to raise children.
1: Every child that gets taken out of a home thinks that they're guilty of doing something wrong and they don't know what the heck it is. I was doing an interview the other day with a a newspaper and they said, well, you know, what's the real issue here? And I said, well, if you're an indigenous child in Canada, you are 12 times more likely to have agencies of the state intervene in your life than if you're a non-Indigenous kid. So you are more likely to have a child welfare worker come and check your house. You're more likely to have a police officer come by your house looking for somebody, even if they're not even connected to you. You are more likely to be stopped in the street. If you're a kid, you're more likely to have your uh, street games busted up. You're more likely to have complaints made against you. You're more likely to be confronted by store owners who calls their security to check you out before you leave the store because they think you're shoplifting. So as a child growing up, as an Indigenous child growing up, you are 12 times more likely to experience those kinds of confrontations than a non-Indigenous kid is, even though the non-Indigenous kid could be doing exactly what you're doing and living exactly the same way you're living, and yet you have this confrontational approach that's being taken towards you. We have to learn to stop that. And that's what I call a form of systemic racism. The system itself believes that we, as Indigenous people, can't be trusted and can't be relied upon to do the right thing. And so they feel they have to control us. They feel they have to monitor us. They have to supervise us. They have to check us out. And that's not right.
0: And we see also a uh, disproportionate number of indigenous people having their lives intervened in in really serious ways by the state through incarceration and in the calls to action it's identified as a clear problem there are specific solutions in the justice section in relation to actually independent oversight of the RCMP, and wouldn't that be good right now, but also mandatory minimum penalties and more. And while I've seen action on child welfare, I've seen action in funding to close the education gap, I haven't seen this government move on justice initiatives. And would that be a priority area for you, having seen what you've seen over the last five years?
1: There's a number of areas that I think we could talk about there. One of them is when it comes to the of litigation, for example. And, and uh, you know, the, the question always arises, is it best to let the courts resolve these questions of reconciliation through litigation? And my answer to that is always no. Judges can't be trusted. They're not well-trained. Not for these things, anyway.
0: In what world is the adversarial process best suited to resolve issues like this?
1: Only if you're playing sports. <laughs> right? you know, then the stronger team wins. And, uh, and perhaps that's the way it should be. But at the same time, I'm a, you know I take a more collaborative approach to even those kinds of things. I like the games where they don't keep score. You know, the the reality is that we're facing situations where we have not yet figured out quite how to resolve many of these problems other than through ways that we've always resolved these problems. And we, we have to change the way that we think them through. We have to change our approaches to things. So like I talked earlier about the business model that the child welfare system uses. Well, we, we need to change the way that we do things generally when it comes to indigenous issues, because we have been raised to believe that indigenous rights didn't exist, that they weren't valued, that indigenous people were not valued. And it's time for us to to change all of that. And, And so again, I go back to what I said earlier, and that is that education is the key. Education is very important, and we need to focus on that
0: And when we think of education, we can think of it in two ways. One, educating the general Canadian population about the history of colonialism and oppression, discrimination, residential schools, and more. And we can also think of education as empowering Indigenous people and Indigenous kids directly and addressing education gaps. There has been some funding to close education gap specific to the inequities of education on and off reserve. There's also been a focus through an Indigenous Languages Act and a promise in the 2019 election for better funding to support that. I would have expected it to be delivered on in the 2020 budget if such a budget happens to occur at some point. But when when we look at justice issues or we look at child welfare issues. Education seems to be key, but poverty reduction and empowering people to live in dignity seems to be a key component as well. When I look at the social determinants of health, when I look at differential education outcomes, when I look at the child welfare apprehension rates associated with people who are living in poverty, I know that the incarceration rates are higher for people who live in poverty. And then when I see even in the pandemic, the impact of COVID-19 itself, and you look at the map, at least in Toronto, you look at the map of people of color and you look at the map of poverty and you look at the map of where COVID's affected folks, and they're the same maps. And I wonder to what extent the federal government should step in in a more serious way. And it wouldn't only address poverty for indigenous people, it would address poverty writ large. But because we see a disproportionate impact on poverty, and then negative outcomes down the line, if if an earlier intervention through yes, education, but also through poverty reduction ought to be an area of focus as well.
1: Yeah, you're right. The uh, social determinants uh, aspect is very important. When you look at the TRC calls to action, the first two dozen calls to action are about the immediate needs of indigenous people and, and that we have to focus on those. It, it's hard to, to fight the big fight when the little fights are wearing it down. That's the point that we made there. And so our initial calls to action were reducing child apprehension rates, reducing incarceration rates, reducing uh, the medical um, problems that indigenous communities are facing, assisting in housing, providing better uh, access to healthy food, better access to healthy water. Uh, so those were all part of our initial set of, of the 94 calls to action. They're probably the first 24, or 25 uh, calls to action because we said that these are key. This is this is This is what we have to do first before we can start talking about the other things. So we need to concentrate on that and we need to see the importance of that. But I also think that we often fail in in our approach by failing to recognize that we have uh, so much more to do uh, when it comes to the larger issues that we haven't even begun to touch on yet. And so... Uh, I agree with you that, you know, when we look at the budget, for example, that we, the government will tell us that they're spending a significant amount of money on a per capita basis on indigenous people. We had um, an analysis done of the government's reaction to the pandemic. It was really interesting. When you look at the per capita amount that the government has spent on the pandemic, uh, and you ask yourselves how much did they spend on a per capita basis to uh, reduce the death rates of Indigenous people prior to the pandemic, uh, the amount is incredibly small. The difference is significant because when it affects non-Indigenous people, the government can come up with billions and billions of dollars. When it affects Indigenous people, they can't come up with more than a couple of hundred million. Uh, When in reality, the poverty that Indigenous people are facing is an imposed poverty. Indigenous people were quite self-sufficient and in the overall scheme of things were economically viable and economically wealthy at the time of uh, contact. There are records and uh, and evidence to show, for example, that the potlatches that were held on the West Coast uh, often resulted in the giveaway of gifts by the chiefs who were running the potlatch that exceeded $100,000. And you have to be very wealthy to be able to do that. And they were wealthy, but government interference took that wealth away from them. Access to the resources, uh, you know, the, the people Uh, who are quick to denigrate Indigenous people will will say, well, you know, Indigenous people weren't mining. Well, nobody was in the 19th century. It was shown that mining could be financially beneficial. Indigenous people wanted to get into that and wanted uh, access to those resources and, in fact, were some of the first and best miners in the industry, but they were the one, not the ones who were successful in convincing the government to help them finance those operations. That money to, to finance those operations went to white capitalists. The people who are saying that, you know, it's uh, white men who, who brought this country to its economic richness... The reality is that it was actually government that did it, and government did it at the expense of indigenous resources. So we have a long way to go just to understand that.
0: When it comes to a focus on poverty reduction and the inability of the federal government to respond with the scale of effort that the federal government has now brought to bear in the pandemic... Other Senate colleagues have called for minimum income or basic income or a guaranteed annual income, however one wants to phrase it. Is that a solution to address poverty writ large, including poverty in in indigenous communities that you would support or you would point instead to investments through housing or otherwise?
1: Well, I, I would support a guaranteed basic income for families. I don't think there's any anything wrong in principle about that. But I think I would also support a greater equalization of payments with regard to Indigenous communities. Right now, we are giving huge amounts of money to provinces as equalization payments to allow them to keep their economies on, on the rise. And we give nothing in the way of equalization payments to Indigenous communities. And mm. we, should, we should be doing that because Indigenous communities are not participants and are not allowed to participate in the provincial economies on the same basis as municipalities, for example. And so that money that's going to the provinces is not benefiting Indigenous people at all. When we talk about uh, equity and fairness and and how we are making decisions in this country, we fail to recognize that inherent in our approach is the fact that we are systematically racist and acting in a racist way towards Indigenous people without even realizing it.
0: The safe restart deal of $19 billion with provinces, there wasn't even, to my knowledge, any comparable attempt to fund Indigenous communities directly in any way whatsoever.
1: None of that money will go to Indigenous communities. I can guarantee that none of it. It will go to the provinces and the provinces then will use it to fund small businesses in municipalities and towns and cities and villages. And they will use it to fund corporate efforts and corporate development projects uh, to fund housing projects. But none of it will go to the uh, small business owners and First Nations communities to get their businesses reestablished, because they've all been affected by the pandemic as well. Of course. Uh, they had to shut down their gas stations. They had to shut down their um, grocery stores. They had to shut down their means of transportation, the taxi businesses, uh, transport businesses that they ran for their communities. Um, they couldn't do any of that, and they're not going to get any of that money.
0: And when it comes to governance challenges, in the sense of the government as a federal government, not dealing in a nation-to-nation way, perhaps with with indigenous communities. If we were dealing in a nation-to-nation way, there would be funding directly for communities through a safe restart deal, potentially with with indigenous communities, how much a part of the solution is a piece of legislation like implementing UNDRIP? Is that going to be transformative or is that going to, in some ways, codify what we already do, but move the needle a little bit further?
1: I don't want to be dismissive of the importance of UNDRIP and the importance of recognizing the the role that UNDRIP can play. But I was asked at a gathering one time about why is uh, recognizing UNDRIP important? And I said, well, actually, UNDRIP itself, you you can't legislate it federally. You can't make UNDRIP applicable to provincial laws and provincial jurisdictions. So there has to be more effort made to involve provinces in the implementation of the principles of UNDRIP. What we called for in the calls to action was that all of the entities to the uh, future of reconciliation of provinces, the federal government, the churches, institutions of society, the corporate environment should be utilizing the principles and UNDRIP as the basis for their discussions around reconciliation. It was not one of our calls to action to say that you should all pass UNDRIP laws, because I don't think it's going to be effective, because the legislation will be so watered down, it'll be almost ineffective. What we run the risk of doing, and what I what I could see happening easily, is that we could be turning UNDRIP into nothing more significant than a happy birthday song, and we can't do that.
0: Turn it into a, a political campaign rather than serious political action.
1: Just turn it into a, uh, look what we have done hallelujah.
0: When you speak about the funding that could flow to Indigenous communities, I wonder in these conversations and the reconciliation conversation even more broadly when it comes to federal funding, how we ought to consider on-reserve and off-reserve Indigenous peoples. In Ontario, I've seen numbers, over 80% of Indigenous people live off-reserve, and it's not to say there isn't some connection to the communities on-reserve, but that they live a good majority of their lives in urban centres. and. I don't see significant funding for urban indigenous communities. I don't see an urban indigenous housing strategy. I've seen a little bit of funding in this pandemic targeted to urban indigenous populations, but it's a very small piece of the overall puzzle. In your view, how can we best support and push for action in supporting urban indigenous communities?
1: Well, I think we have to have a very serious discussion with the um, indigenous organizations at this point in time. The First Nations, and Métis, and the Inuit groups that are recognized about what their uh, interest level and where their interest level lies with regard to uh, representing and and taking up the cause of those Indigenous peoples who don't reside within their communities. And for the most part, we have to recognize that there will initially be a claim that they represent all Indigenous people and uh, they'll want that. But with the um, Daniel's decision regarding the Métis and with the amendments to the provisions on uh, status in the Indian Act, the reality is that more and more Indigenous people off-reserve are going to have some legal status that they didn't enjoy in prior years, in prior generations. And therefore, we're now facing a situation where, as a result of the consequence of those legal actions, we're going to be dealing with more and more demand and more and more need on the part of Indigenous people in urban areas. The other reality, of course, is that Indigenous communities, particularly First Nation communities, but also Inuit communities, generally are facing a migration, an outward migration of indigenous youth because they don't see a future for themselves living within their communities. The economies in those communities are so small. The opportunities to be teachers and lawyers and doctors and engineers uh, are so few that they have to go elsewhere to seek out those opportunities. And so raising their children in a culture where they won't have access to their cultural needs or programs that meet their cultural needs is going to be a part of their unfortunate reality if we don't do something about it. I think there has to be a, a coherent uh, federal policy with regard to the question of how funding is going to be provided to organizations that represent those urban indigenous groups, because the obligation to do so is clearly a federal one. Supreme Court has said so in the Daniels case and in many other cases as well. And they can't simply get away with saying that our obligation is met by funding First Nations on reserve because the obligation to fund arises from the practice of oppression that has gone on for so long, and the benefits that that practice of oppression has had for the Canadian government and for Canadian society generally.
0: I think that's a really important point to ground the entire conversation in in a repeated way. And and it's why the frustration for the slow action, too, because even though we can pat ourselves on the back and say, well, we've taken significant action over the last five years in comparison to previous governments, when you look at the scale of oppression over the history that is Canada, and you look at the differential outcomes today because of that history of oppression and colonialism, you need to constantly remind people that there is an additional obligation to make sure that justice is done. And justice is done not only for Indigenous people on reserve, it's for all Indigenous people in Canada, who right now, are when we see the statistics, are going to face, in the aggregate, differential outcomes because of past unjust policies.
1: You know, it's really interesting. And, and you know, when you talk to people about the facts of history and, uh, and bring things to their attention they weren't aware of, when they... Um, Uh, The Rupert's Land rights of the Hudson's Bay Company were being negotiated with the Hudson's Bay Company at the time. Most people are not aware of the fact that the Hudson's Bay Company had been trying to sell their rights to their Rupert's Land territory to Americans, and that the selling price that they had agreed upon with an American company was $38 million. And that's in 1867. In 1867, $38 million, when you convert it into today's dollars, is in the hundreds of billions of dollars, just to the, you do the simple, math conversion to today's value. So that's how much they valued just the the Rupert's Land rights for the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh, The Hudson's Bay Company was forced by England to give up those negotiations with the Americans and were told that they had to negotiate with Canada. They sold and they were compensated for their rights over Rupert's Land uh, to the tune of about $12 million and convert that again. And that still goes close to uh, several millions and millions of dollars that the the Hudson's Bay Company received were literally nothing more than a title that had been illegally conveyed to them by the crown and right of England. Okay. So you look at that and then you ask yourself, Okay, if the treaties had been properly negotiated by the First Nations communities who who were forced by the treaty process to give up their rights to their territories, how much in in property value, using those as property, that $38 million figure, using that as as an idea of what the property was worth, how much should each First Nation have gotten for signing a treaty? Certainly a lot more than $4 per person yet that's all they got. So Canada literally got access to territory for next to nothing. And when people say, well, you know, we should stop paying treaty payments, we should just do away with the treaties, the reality is that these were property transactions that were negotiated in bad faith to the detriment of Indigenous people. But certain promises were made that still were not kept. The reality is that when it comes to what value there was to Canada. Canada received access to territory that was worth even in 1867 dollars, probably in in the billions of dollars at that time, particularly when you consider the resources. So now their obligation to recognize that they've got to share some of those resources with First Nations people and Inuit people and Métis people has got to remain.
0: Fast forward to today, and the goal is ensuring equality and dignity for everyone. And to account for the injustices and make sure that the injustices aren't enduring going forward. Between your office, my office, and others who care about this issue, is there, in your view, legislation that we should be prioritizing to address longstanding inequities?
1: Yes. In fact, my uh, my, my staff right now is developing a, sort of a list of calls to action and what kind of bills we can put into place or we should be calling for to be put into place with regard to each of the calls to action that are out there. So one about housing, for example, medical benefits and medical rights. Some of it is about legislation, some of it is about establishing federal policy as well. In the area of uh, Senate reform, uh, you know, one of the discussions that we're having right now within our group, and and we have 12 senators uh, and other parliamentarians as well are now part of the discussion. The Indigenous parliamentarians are talking about the question of whether we should have a guaranteed number of Senate seats, a guaranteed number of seats in the House of Commons to ensure that there is always a presence within parliament to be able to bring voice to the analysis that will have to be done and should be done with regard to every bill to ensure that it properly deals with and does not inadvertently or otherwise limit the rights of indigenous people. And we don't have that kind of analysis right now, and we need that kind of analysis.
0: And on the question of funding, we've seen an increase in federal funding on issues related to reconciliation, but you make the right point, which is slower than you'd like to see. And, when you compare it to the pandemic response, it pales in comparison. And when we look at the broader conversation about building back better or recovery efforts, however one wants to frame it, there have been calls for a green recovery, there have been calls for childcare, there have been calls for long-term care reform and funding to ensure people can retire in dignity wherever they live. If we can't address long-standing injustices associated with colonialism now in the course of this recovery, if not now, when? And do you have a sense of the dollar figure that would be required to call on the federal government to invest in indigenous communities, both on reserve and off reserve?
1: I do not. It's not through lack of effort. You know, the numbers are all over the wall because uh, they're very speculative about you know when things will happen and how things will happen and what the nature of the resistance will be and how we're going to deal with that. So I would say that we still have a long way to go before we can even begin to talk about numbers. But it's the principles that I think we need to begin to focus on that are important. And and I would say that we we haven't even had that conversation. So it's too early right now to start talking about numbers.
0: The last thing I wanted to uh, to note was only your advocacy for S203, which was a bill to end the captivity of cetaceans. And you gave, I think, in parliamentary history, one of the more powerful accounts of animals and why we ought to treat animals with compassion and respect because they are sentient. And so I just wanted to thank you for that.
1: Well. Wow. Thank you very much. And uh, it hasn't ended there, incidentally, because now I'm going after the zoos.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, you say say where and when, and I'll be there to support you.
1: Absolutely. Good. I'll call upon you because uh, (laughs) all animals being held in captivity, unless it's for an essential medical reason or valid research reason, shouldn't be held in captivity just for display.
0: Senator, I really appreciate your time and appreciate all of your advocacy my, my mom says, hi, she likes you more than I do even. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, with that, I, 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 you know, I look forward to working with you going forward.
1: Okay. So the real question is, does your mom like me more than she likes you? So you gotta
0: that right <laughs> that, that, I, she <laughs> might, I'm not sure. You've certainly accomplished more that she likes than I have. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Say hi to for me. Thank you. I know we will. Take care. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes and recommend future guests and topics on social media at BYNate.